I hope you're having a good week. This is Coin Week editor Charles Morgan welcoming you to the Coin Week podcast, brought to you by our good friends at PCGS. For more than 30 years, PCGS has been a trusted partner to the building of some of the greatest coin collections ever assembled. With our tamper-evident and secure holder, PCGS has kept the timeless treasures of American and world numismatics safe and has evolved their product from the innovative Rattler holder, remember that one, to the present-day clear and secure holder that is now being augmented with advanced technology to give you additional peace of mind and security. To learn more about PCGS great products, visit www.pcgs.com. My friend Bill Eckberg, president of EAC, is back on the Coin Week podcast this week. We've had many great conversations on air covering his area of collecting specialty half cents. This time, we cast a wider net and talk about how the U.S. Mint sourced its copper for our first cents and half cents and in what condition that metal was delivered by the time it made its transatlantic voyage. Bill's insights will help you improve your quest for great early copper coins. And for you students of early mint history, you'll enjoy the next 30-minute conversation, I promise. All this next on the Coin Week Podcast. Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining me on the Coin Week podcast. Good to be here, Charles. Good to talk to you again. In studying early copper coins, one of the things collectors might discover is that early copper coin planchets play a large role in determining the quality of the coin as struck. And given that the United States Mint was more focused on the production of silver and gold coin blanks at the time, the production of copper coins was reliant on transatlantic trade between the U.S. government and private businesses in England. So, I wanted to ask you to guide us through the Mint's procurement of copper starting in 1793 and how these various sources of copper impacted the quality of half-cents and large-cents struck in the early days of the U.S. Mint. Sure, I'll be glad to do that. Um, I probably should mention right now, since we're in the middle of a, a coronavirus pandemic, that uh, copper kills coronavirus. So if you're a copper collector, spend some time with your coins. And if you're a silver or gold collector, get some copper coins and spend time with them. Uh, it can save your life. Um, but having said that, uh, we know that beginning in 1792, the, the Mint uh, in Philadelphia bought copper locally. Uh, they actually took out ads and broadsides and newspapers uh, for people to bring uh, copper to the Mint, and uh, they would melt it down. Uh, one of our members, Ray Williams, uh, recently found an ad from a 1792 September broadside in Philadelphia that said the mint was paying the highest prices for copper. So uh, they they initially started that way and uh, and uh, uh, eventually went to buying uh, sheet copper directly. But uh, the the purpose, of course, initially was uh, because they wanted to get minting something. And uh, they were not legally allowed to mint gold or silver coins until uh, 1794, at least, because all of the people at the mint who had to handle precious metals, gold or silver, um, had to post a bond equal to several years' salary before they were allowed to handle gold or silver. And that would be uh, Tristram Dalton, the treasurer, Albion Cox, the assayer, although he wasn't hired until 1794, 
and Henry Voigt, the chief coiner. Can you imagine having to pay the government several years' salary in advance to get a job? Uh, scary times. You would think we're in scary times now. That was really scary. Indicative, I think, Bill, of a government that was formed by and for the wealthiest people in the country. Well, exactly. And, of course, in Europe, if you uh, if you uh, uh, made coins that were too light for the king's purposes, uh, you would be you would be executed. Uh, we didn't do that here. Um, if you were if you were a uh, counterfeiter, you were branded and had your ear cut. Um, we didn't do those things uh, in the United States, but uh, we we made it expensive for you to get a job at the mint. Um, anyway, in 1792, the uh, mint purchased a little over three tons of scrap copper, which would have been enough to coin a little over 213,000 uh, cents. Uh, they didn't, of course, make cents in 1792 except for a few patterns. In 1793, they purchased uh, 980 pounds and 10 ounces of scrap copper, um, and that would have been enough for another uh, 33,000 coins. Um, in 1793, they actually made 112,212 cents and 31,934 half cents. Um, so they didn't use anywhere near the amount of copper they had on hand at the time. Uh, now the copper was not just used for copper planchets. Uh, it was also used for the machinery that they were building. And some of it would have been saved to, uh, alloy with gold and silver. But, um, uh, they had on hand more than enough copper to make the coins that they made in 1793. In 1794, they purchased a little over uh, 24 tons of copper. All of that came from Europe in sheet form, and that, again, was more than enough to mint the, uh, the cents and half cents that they made in 1794 and some left over for alloy, alloying with gold and silver. Um, in 1795, they purchased almost four tons of copper, uh, which was way more than they uh, used to strike cents and half cents that year. In 1796, uh, they purchased almost 25 tons of copper, again, way more than they needed to strike the coins, but in 1796, they did things differently. Um, some of the copper, most of the copper they bought was sheet copper, but they also bought it in the form of tokens from the Talbot Allen and Lee Company, uh, which were importers, and they used those uh, primarily to strike half cents. Almost all of the half cents made in 1796 and 1797 were struck on those uh on those uh, Talbot Allen and Lee tokens, and sometimes you can see uh, bits of the token underneath. It makes for very interesting-looking coins. And they also bought uh, planchets from a company in England called Governor and Company. These are often called Coltman blanks after the name of the company's owner, William Coltman. Uh, those were supposedly rough and discolored and kind of bent convex that they were used and the result was that the coins made from these blanks 
looked like the border on one side was filed off or rounded down. Um, so consequently, the Mint wasn't very happy with those. In uh, 1797 and thereafter, until 1834, they purchased uh, the blanks from uh, from uh, Bolton in in, uh, in England, and uh, the government or the uh, Mint liked them, and they purchased those at a cost of about 64 and a half cents per hundred. So the Mint could actually strike coins and make a profit, which was important because the Mint lost money every time it made a gold or a silver coin. Bill, since the Mint in Philadelphia is ordering copper from England, uh, and the copper does not arrive in America quickly, it has to cross the Atlantic on a boat, and since, you know, copper is heavy, it's stored in the hull of these merchant ships, uh, these wooden merchant ships, uh, and these holes are damp places, they leak, uh, and the copper, being a highly reactive metal, is exposed to these conditions. Uh, you also have in uh, Philadelphia at the time a series of yellow fever outbreaks, uh, some of which closed the ports in Philadelphia, uh, leaving the copper that was shipped to sit in this environment at port even longer. Did this reduce the quality of the metal to the point where some of the copper was unusable or so that the resulting coins were impaired? That's, that's an interesting question. In fact, there was a letter, I don't have it in front of me right now, that uh, the director of the Mint wrote to Bolton complaining about the way that uh, some of the planchets they received had been shipped. Uh, they had apparently been too deep in the, in, the, in the hold of the ship. These were wooden ships, so they leaked, and, uh, and the planchets, being very heavy, were used as ballast, just like ballast stones, uh, to keep the ship upright. And uh, and it did happen that water leaked in, and you know, seawater, so it's a little corrosive. Uh, it it is a little hard on copper. And there there is a letter from the director to the to, to Bolton complaining about the quality of some of the planchets because um, they were uh, discolored and, and a little bit rough from the from the shipment. But he said that what they did was they just had to clean them, and then they used them anyway. Um, as far as cleaning them is concerned, presumably they used vinegar uh, to do that, and uh, and and that would get rid of some of the some of the crud. And of course, the roughness of the planchets would be smoothed out in the striking. So, as far as we know, there were no planchets that were received that were too bad to use. And if they really were bad, they could have used them. They could have melted them and used them as alloy for uh, gold and silver. So even though planchets did get damaged in shipment, they weren't they weren't destroyed and unusable that way. Now, why did the mint go from rolling its own copper in the beginning to buying planchets? I think the main reason that they did it uh, was th the fact that the rolling mills that the mint had for uh, for rolling the the uh, the strip into the right thickness for coinage weren't very good. Uh, they didn't have very good steel. Um, they may have even used uh, copper rollers. Uh, nobody really knows for sure. Um, but the, the quality of the rolling mills wasn't good, and they wanted to use that exclusively for gold and silver. So uh, basically, to save the rolling mills, they used uh, imported uh, copper strip and copper planchets. 
Did the Mint find a way to become self-sufficient in the production of cent and half-cent planchets as its technology improved in the 1830s? Well, not really. They continued to purchase the planchets uh, until they stopped making half-cents and large-cents. Um, but they purchased them after uh, after 1834. They purchased them domestically. They uh, had some companies in, in the U.S. that they purchased planchets from. Uh, but they continued using Bolton planchets from uh, 1797 through 1834. And the quality was, was very good. Bill, you've reviewed quite a number of copper coins and looking at the high-grade survivors that are around today. What's your takeaway as to the quality of the planchets that the Mint typically used to strike these coins? I think the quality of the planchets was pretty good. Um, the The real weaknesses from what I've seen is that uh, half cents generally come to come very well struck and they're on nice planchets and they're very attractive in high grade. Large cents, however, are almost never fully struck. I think that the uh, the mint screw press uh, just wasn't quite capable of, of striking a large cent um, as effectively as it could be. Um, I did a study of of uh, the large scent dies, and I had a very, very hard time finding a fully struck large scent of the Drake bus type to use as an example of of how they could be struck. So I really think that the mints presses until 1836 when they when they went to uh, steam power and used a completely different uh, mechanism for striking coins. Um, I think until then they just. They did the best they could with what they had to work with. We were using, in the United States, in the in the 18th century, we were really using uh, 16th and 17th century technology from Europe. Uh, we were at least 100, 150 years behind uh, the technology in Europe until the middle, well, until 1835 and 6, uh, when, when we actually learned what they were doing in Europe. How did the War of 1812 impact the Mint's ability to acquire copper? Seems to me like trading with the enemy would have been a tricky proposition for both parties. Um, there actually was a shipment that was on the way from England when war broke out, and we got that. And uh, those were the planchets that they used to strike coins from uh, 1812 through 1814. Fortunately, they got a lot of them. Um, and in 1815, when the war ended, they were out of planchets, so they didn't make any any uh, cents or half cents in 1815. And in fact, that's the only year in the history of the United States when the cent was not struck at all. Um, at the end of the year, they got some planchets in, and they uh, coined a lot of of large cents in early 1816. Um, surprisingly, or perhaps surprisingly to a lot of people. Those large cents that they created at the begin of, beginning of 1816 were all dated 1814. They were uh, uh, struck from, from leftover dyes that had been made a couple years before. But after that, you know, Bolton and Watt were back to delivering planchets to the U.S., and, and it was full speed ahead. So when you look at these 1814 dated cents struck in 1816, do they show apparent dye rust or other markers that prove their age? 
Actually, no, they don't. The reason that we know that is because of the sizes of the surviving populations of 1814 and 1816 cents. Um, this was discovered uh, about 20 years ago by Ron Manley, that there are way too many 1814 large cents and way too few 1816 large cents relative to the numbers that we thought had been made, but that if all of those delivered in February of 1816 were dated 1814, then the numbers work out correctly. Um, we do know, however, which ones were struck that year, and it's the plain four variety. There's a crosslip four variety and a plain four variety of 1814, and it was the plain fours that were struck in 1816. Well, I think that goes to a tradition that the Mint had at that point of using dyes for as long as they could, even if they were breaking the rules. So it must be difficult to get a true handle on the precise mintages per date of those early copper coins. That That's correct. Really, the only way that you can get the minted, get the approximate mintage of the number of coins with a particular date on them is by studying the surviving population. Um, we know that that uh, the mint uh, struck 1803 dated dollars in 1804. Uh, that's why the, there's a report that 1804 dollars were made. They weren't dated 1804. Um, we know that uh, 1797 half cents were made in 17. 99 and 1800. We know that uh, uh, that 1798 cents were made in 1799, and we can tell that because the uh, the, the coins share a common die uh, between the two dates. And by looking at the uh, die state, the changes in the die state as the coins are produced, we can tell that some 1798 large cents were struck after some 1799 large cents. It's really an interesting kind of study. It's the sort of thing that keeps copper collectors off the streets, if you will. We don't encounter copper coins in circulation much anymore today. Uh, the U.S. Mint moved to the Zincan composition in 1982, and our modern scents deteriorate fairly quickly through use and exposure to the environment. Did early copper coins fare better in their circulation and use? You know, we do see many examples that were recovered uh, with environmental damage due to being buried in the soil or in the, in the walls of buildings. But did most of the copper coins that circulated fare better than modern-day Zincans? Well, they were, they, they circulated as coins until 1857. Um, and, and we know that at that time, there were a lot of uh, very early ones still in circulation uh, because uh, certain favored coin dealers in Philadelphia were allowed to go through the, the copper coins that were turned in at the mint and save the ones they thought they could make money off of. So, so the earliest ones are actually uh, more common than we would think they would be based on the sizes of the mintages. Um, we also know that the mint continued to receive large cents and half cents um, for many, many years after that. Um, Harry Salyards recently discovered that the mint was still uh, redeeming large cents in 1954. Um, after that, they didn't say that they were getting large cents specifically. They just said they were getting cents for recoining. Um, 
but they but they still listed large cents as something that they were taking in as late as 1954. So at least in my lifetime, they were still redeeming large cents. People still had them. Let's take a large cent and a half cent. What should collectors look for in terms of planchet quality at the different collectible grades? Well, uh, if you're fortunate enough to collect them in high grade, we expect the planchets to be really, really nice. Um, we expect uh, no, no corrosion, no porosity, uh, not many bumps. Uh, copper is a fairly soft metal and, and got banged around a lot, so a lot of them got scratches and bumps. Um, if you're looking at uh, coins in extremely fine or better, you, you want them to be really, really nice. If they're in the fine to very fine range, uh, you know, they've had some wear. They've circulated for a number of years. And you expect uh, not quite perfect surfaces, but they still should be attractive. Once the coins get down to about good, uh, you know, they can be pretty beat up. Um, we don't, we don't uh, really criticize the, the planchets very much in coins that are of low grade. Um, so the quality of the planchets that you should expect pretty much uh, is grade dependent. What, what looks really bad on a XF coin wouldn't look bad at all on a good coin. At the same time, do you think that it's a good idea to buy net-graded early copper coins? Yeah, it, it depends on what you're willing to pay. Um, an XF coin that's net-graded down to fine, for example, would have you know significant problems. And most people would not pay as much for that as they would pay for a, a, a nice a fine coin that doesn't have any problems. Um, so you really have to be careful what you pay for a thing like that, but certainly it's uh, worth collecting. There's, there's no problem with that. Well, Bill, thanks for joining us. Always informative. You too. Stay safe and stay well and, and uh, take care of yourself and your family. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. Remember, you can download all 130-plus episodes of the Coin Week podcast for free from the iTunes store or stream it on our YouTube channel. For Coin Week, I'm Editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.